episode 356 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we express here today do not reflect those of our clients, our friends, our institutions, uh, our families, our pets, or maybe not even ours three weeks from today. I'm going to be interviewing today Kim Zetter, who's a uh, longtime cybersecurity reporter, very, very well regarded, and the author of Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. And we'll be talking about this kind of slightly below the radar campaign to say that there's a gap U.S. defenses between domestic and and overseas intelligence collection and that solar winds demonstrates that we need to change authorities. Uh, so it'll be an interesting conversation. Uh, but first, we're going to jump into the news roundup. We've got Nick Weaver, crowd favorite and computer science teacher at UC Berkeley, and Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology, law, and policy at Georgetown and uh, does tech policy at the Future of Privacy Forum. We've got Charles Albert Heliput, uh, who is a Steptoe partner, who heads our EU cybersecurity data and privacy practice. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Main stories today, uh, let's talk Supreme Court. Mark was a decision on robot calls a few days ago and then of course they're just recently just today as we're getting ready to uh, record there was a decision uh, in the uh, fight between Google and Oracle over API copyrightability. Let's start with the TCPA case, the the robocall case. Yeah, sure, Stuart. It was a unanimous decision and it concerned uh, a, a statute from 1991, the telephone Consumer Protection Act, and and the uh, key measure in that was an issue was the uh, prohibition on using an auto dialer to reach a cell phone or a text message, send a text message without prior express approval of the the called party. Facebook got involved in this because they sent a text message to a non-subscriber who complained, and Facebook said it was using the old cell phone uh, number of a subscriber who had signed up for notifications, but. Instead of turning on questions of consent, and the case addressed, what's an auto dialer? And the lower court, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, said that an uh, auto dialer only has to have the capacity to store numbers and to dial such numbers automatically. But relying on the statutory text, the Supreme Court said the device has to use a random or sequential number generator in addition to that. And Facebook didn't use that, so it wasn't using an auto dialer and didn't need to get consent. Now, the key is not grammar, even though the, there was extensive analysis of the statute itself, but really whether the statute should be read broadly or narrowly. And the court, the Supreme Court, thought that a narrow reading was needed because if you didn't have a narrow reading, then every cell phone in the country would be an auto dialer since they had the capacity to store numbers and using speed dial to automatically dial them. The court really seemed pretty indifferent to the underlying purpose of the statute of which was to end nuisance calls and really well, and, and maybe maybe whoever was challenging this picked the, the case well because facebook was being tagged with massive uh, uh, class action liability for having sent out a 
text message saying, excuse me, somebody is using this number for a particular uh, um, website or activity, and if it's not you, you need to do something about it. And somebody got it, and it wasn't him, and he's, instead of getting mad about somebody using his phone number, he decided a class action was the right answer for yeah, sending well, him <laughs> unsolicited uh, uh, calls. Yeah, but I mean, the, the details of the case are irrelevant going forward. The key thing is what, what really is an auto dialer and and the court really wants to say that the statute refers to what they describe as senescent technology that no one really uses anymore and doesn't apply to today's way of making automatic cell phone uh, calls. Now, the danger in the court's decision is pretty clear. If I have a database of cell phone numbers, I can program a computer to make calls to all of them or to send text messages to all of them without triggering any kind of TCPA consent requirement. Now, now, let's be careful. It, this doesn't apply to do not call. You can still opt out of this stuff. And there's a separate restriction on recorded messages, but the opportunity for abuse is still pretty large. It would be a little hard to, if you had a list of, of phone numbers, you're either going to dial it sequentially or you're going to dial it randomly, unless you've got a reason. As long as the numbers weren't generated, right, using that, doesn't matter how you get it out of the database. If they weren't generated using a random or sequential uh, device, then it doesn't really matter. So Markey and Eshoo say that the congressional intent is clear as water. Congress meant to cover automated calls from databases. The generation of the number through a random number generator or a sequential number generator wasn't the key thing. Now, if you, if you need a reminder of the potency of this issue, think back to the do not call rule from 2003. Dave Barry called it the most popular federal concept since the Elvis stamp. And, and we can have a lot of unwanted phone calls right now. It's such a pervasive problem that many people don't answer their phones unless they know the person calling. And, and the court's decision just made it worse and certainly prompt a congressional reaction. If you read the statute, the statute says uh, if you generated or acquired them, I forgot now, if you generated them and then at the comma and then said using a random number generator or using a uh, sequential dialing mechanism. And the question was, well, uh, did you have to generate them using those things? Uh, or uh, could anybody who had generated a list dial and be liable. And I thought it was very clear both when you have a list of things in a statute and then you put a comma after that list and qualify it, then you're qualifying everything in that list. 90% of the time, that's the right answer. And so the question is, why should they stretch this law to some of the peculiar outcomes that were demonstrated by the other side in order to reach what people say is the, the will of Congress. If it's so obviously the will of Congress, they can do it again right. That's actually what's going to happen. I mean, Markey and Eshoo say that they clearly meant that if it stores numbers to be called and dials such numbers automatically, they intended that to be what the statute covered. The court disagreed, so now it's up to Congress to fix the problem. Yeah, I don't think they intended that at all. They, they, did. Did. they weren't thinking about it. Uh, of course they uh, this, did. this also turned into 
a remarkable bonanza for the plaintiff's bar. Uh, TCPA cases were suddenly everywhere, and I'm not convinced that all of them were good cases. Uh, just as the, the example of, of Facebook tells you, I think it's a good thing that they sent those, those messages to people whose phone numbers were being used, and the idea that they should have massive tort liability is nuts. And so I'm guessing that Eshu uh, is carrying water for the plaintiff's bar, and we'll see if that's enough to get through this particular Congress. You're going to have to face Dave Barry all over again uh, when you get on the other side of this issue. Dave, come and get me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Speaking of dumb fights we're going to have again, apparently the, the government and Silicon Valley is all enthusiastic about the idea of creating a high-tech COVID vaccination passport, uh, just like Google and Apple helped us solve the problem of contact tracing. Uh, Nick, is this just another dumb idea out of Silicon Valley? No, but it's not going to matter. So if it was the case where the COVID vaccine was not nearly as effective as it is, if you're a private business, you're going to want to protect your employees and you're going to want a mechanism to make sure that your employees aren't killed by idiot Karens. Um, I don't think that I don't think that qualifies as a Karen. Karen is a self-righteous person who wants to talk to the manager, not somebody who wants to spread disease. Given how many of the Karens object to wearing a mask, yeah, Karen is implicitly pro-virus. Are the women of a certain age who invoke their uh, authority. Okay, let me instead stay the explicit pro-virus camp of the Republican Party. Although, be careful there, because uh, a lot of the vaccine resistance comes from the black community and... The African-American community vaccine resistance has really gone down over the past couple of months. It's quite remarkable, and this is very good public health news. But anyway, the notion of a vaccine passport really only makes sense when vaccines are highly available, but not necessarily all that effective. And since the COVID vaccines are effectively 100% at turning any COVID infection into a common cold, even if you do get it, the risk to employees and other patrons is really low. So I theory is that we would need this if everybody in the store who worked in the store got a vaccine, but still could get sick and and, and have a problem. And so anybody who walks in who's unvaccinated poses a risk. Whereas now the easy way to protect yourself is get the damn vaccine and asking everybody to show up passport is a a kind of very kludgy way to solve the problem. Yes. And so I don't think the vaccine passports domestically are going to go anywhere. Where it will matter is international travel, notably to places that have done good jobs of containing COVID internally. So like South Korea or Australia, New Zealand. They will not want people, They one person showing up with COVID-19 is a disaster for them and therefore they are going to want real assurance. And if that's the case though, I, let's suppose you just have a piece of paper that says, uh, here are your two vaccines or your one vaccine. That they're going to want- That doesn't do any good for it. I, I have to say, I had years ago 
a, uh, a vaccination passport that went with my passport everywhere I went. And it showed all of my vaccinations. And I was required to produce it uh, by a, a variety of border authorities. So this is not exactly new as a concept. Right. And that will have to be probably for international, but I don't see a domestic vaccine passport taking off because we're getting availability and the side effects are so low and the effectiveness is so high that a far better use of effort is just public health messaging of get the damn shot and live the vax life. And, and I, of course, the privacy people can't participate in a discussion about something that would save health without saying, oh, don't do that without privacy it's this and a privacy that. Although I frankly don't see a lot of privacy problems here. Either you got the vaccine or you didn't. That doesn't strike me as a deep-seated privacy issue. The problem is in order to build the infrastructure necessary to securely and robustly communicate that information, you have all these identity issues and stuff like that. And if you don't want security and robustness in the system, we have it already. You probably have the nice little CDC card uh, someplace. I have mine in my pocket. Yep. And so the theory of the privacy ideologues is you should just have something that says, a person was vaccinated, and the person carrying this uh, is probably them. No, the thing is, is in order to do it securely, you need to be able to say it is robustly them. And we don't even have the infrastructure for that period, let alone for something like vaccines. It's crazy. It's crazy to, to, to turn that into a privacy issue. I'm sorry. You're carrying a damn passport, which has a serious risk, a ser serious uh, a data uh, uh, base about you. And to complain that you don't want to have your information about vaccination tied to that in some fashion is elevating privacy over uh, common sense, so, which I think calls for Charles Albert to jump right in. Charles, uh, it, it, there is a lot of talk about how GDPR, after really being impressive as a, uh, a theory, is not working out so well in practice because indiv the individual states who were charged with administering it by the European Commission, which didn't have to worry about this, have discovered that it's kind of expensive to fund the sorts of data protection authorities that you need to, to impose all the fines that the data protection enthusiasts want to impose. Yeah, and the question there is whether some countries that are managing the big tech of the world, so namely Irish DPC, really wants to bite all of those uh, big techs, you can have some doubt. So uh, I think they are first unwilling to do so, and it's no secret, so they, they don't hide. If you uh, look at some of Ellen Dixon's talk, and you have the same for another very big EU country, Luxembourg, to, not to name it, they openly say that they are not so keen of enforcing against organization. They better try and want to have uh, organization to gently be more responsible for data without receiving big ticket fines. So you can question whether they really want to enforce. And then, well, they may want to enforce, but they may not want to enforce it with fines that, fines, uh, that exactly, would make yeah. Brussels happy. 
Yeah, and or Brussels or privacy activists or the Lambda people in the street. Yeah. And, and then the other question, of course, is whether they have an ability to do so. Because if you look at the Irish DPC, it's 150 people there. You may consider it's a lot, but it's really peanuts compared to uh, some of the biggest DPAs in the EU. And clearly, they don't have the right level of staffing to enforce and do those investigations. And thirdly, they are rather unsuccessful as well. So because by the time they manage to enforce, and that's not solely for the Irish DPC, but it's for a couple of others as well. By the time they manage to enforce and issue fines, most of those fines are challenged in court. And very often the courts tend to lower the fines or move them away completely. So it's it's probably a lot of frustration for everyone. But what you can see- Hey, wait, wait, not for the lawyers and uh, probably not for the- <laughs> Silicon Valley companies that uh, that chose Ireland or Luxembourg as their uh, as their regulator. Yeah, although although you never know because th- that kind of increased frustration in all kind of pace and everywhere then see some strange outcomes. So you see more and more data protection authorities going solo. So you had the Italian DPA the Garante going after uh, TikTok itself, let's say, whilst it was not supposed to be the the authorities going against them. And you also see more and more action straight into courts where data subjects are suing those companies, leaving all of the um, enforcement scenario that GDPR contemplated completely away. So I'm not sure that we are gaining anything there. You may be right that uh, this will drive the lawsuits and maybe some of the regulatory work to the to the most aggressive uh, jurisdictions, uh, which won't mind being outliers in the other direction. Hamburg and their data protection authority is particularly notorious for for thinking that they're the toughest kid on the block. Uh, for example, <laughs> just to pick one. Uh, all right, so I, this will not this will go on for a while, but it does remind me of the the story about the uh, the French scientist looking at an experiment and saying, "Well, yes, it works in practice, but does it work in theory?" And the the Brussels theory is not working out in practice uh, thus far. No, but let's say it gives us some uh, good fun over here because uh, you have some drama uh, with the uh, European Parliament Libe Commission trying to have Ellen Dixon coming to speak at hearings and then she declined last minute. So it, it it's makes our life much more fun than what it's supposed to be. So. Well, good for her because uh, uh, that sounds like it would have been uh, an auto da fe. So <laughs> she probably made the right choice. Uh, all right. Uh, so... Mark, uh, there's been some attention because Facebook put out a uh, a report on its anti-bias tools to what Facebook is doing to try to make sure that its tools, whether it's face recognition or add a smile to this photo or get rid of toxic comments, whether they are avoiding bias. And Facebook po- published a post that sort of bragged that said we're actually doing something here, and they they got a lot of pushback from the press. I guess those everything they say gets pushback from the press. But uh, did you think they deserved it? I don't think they did. I think they put out a blog recently about fairness in, in their systems, and it was a pretty good job as far as it went. I mean they. I think they're rightly concerned that some of their systems can perform poorly for some groups, 
yeah, even if on average they're okay. And and it had a, a very positive uh, message to the public and to its own organization that the, these systems have to be assessed for fairness before they, they're put in, into production. Otherwise, you can have consequences you might not have intended at all. And some of the obvious things are if you're using facial recognition, train the, the system on more representative data sets. And they had some thoughtful comments on the issues that have uh, bedeviled the fairness, accountability, and transparency crowd, including the definition of fairness. What do you, how do you manage a trade-off between accuracy and fairness? And it unveiled a tool called Fairness Flow, which doesn't fix any biases that it might detect. It's just a diagnostic tool. And they say they're applying it to their ad systems. It's an optional tool right now, but they want to make the tool mandatory. And, and they were careful to point out that it, just because you've got some kind of disparate impact going on, it doesn't mean that you have a fairness concern. It means there might be a problem here. Or it may be that, that life is unfair. Life is unfair, or as they put it, the groups may have different positive rates in the ground truth data. And they don't say this, but it's well known in the community that recidivism scores rate African-Americans as more likely to commit a crime again, and credit scores rank African-Americans as less creditworthy. And the first step in determining what to do about these kind of issues is to measure the outcomes by the affected groups. And I think Facebook is just getting ahead of the increasing calls for algorithmic assessments. Like, like what Ron Wyden called for in this bill last, the last Congress, he's almost certainly going to put that back in in this session. Now, what to do when you have a finding of disparate impact? That's the $64,000 question, to, to use a dated reference. Uh, and, and, and Facebook's post doesn't say much about that at all. And so the criticism is right to point out that Facebook has to say a whole lot more about when and how it will attempt to mitigate bias. But it's a step in the right direction to try to get its own operational parts of its own organization to assess fairness. Yeah, so they, they rely pretty heavily something called a model card, which I gather is something designed to by the people who actually did the data training to say, here are what we think are the limitations of this particular algorithmic tool. And it, it, it talks about what's the use that it's intended for, what's it not intended for, what are the relative impacts on various groups. Yeah, and I think that kind of tool is a step in the right direction. It doesn't give you answers. It gives you, it gives you assessments uh, and diagnoses. Uh, and then the question is, you know, do you think you've got a problem that needs to be fixed? And they say very little about that uh, second step. Yeah, I was, I, I actually went to the paper about model cards to see if I could fully understand it. And I'm not sure I do fully understand it, but the model card for toxicity in text talks about the evaluation data, which is usually, it's the data you use to say, was this toxic or not? You have to have some ground truth in, re in reality, at least for this kind of uh, uh, machine learning. And the model card talks about synthetic data which is valuable here because real data often has a disproportionate amounts of toxicity directed at specific groups. So synthetic data ensures that we evaluate on data that represents both toxic and non-toxic statements referencing a variety of groups. Now, I'm not sure what that means, but I think what they, they're saying is that the same thing, the same statement directed to 
one minority group might be toxic and directed toward another minority group might be non-toxic, which I think is a really dangerous concept, but one that's pretty common in the uh, academic literature. And it looks to me as though what they're saying is if we can't get the right result using the real data, we're going to make some data up and stick it into our test as a way of writing some social wrong. Uh, it's very troubling. as a, It's what I've expected from the academics in this field, and it looks as though that's what's happening. But I won't say it for sure because I gave it a quick look, and I, I, can't, I can't with confidence say that the synthetic data is meant to produce the kind of uh, outcomes that the academics wanted to find but didn't in the real world. Okay, uh, let's move on to creative subpoenaing. The IRS is has sent out a, a uh, subpoena asking for every Circle customer who transacted more than $20,000 in cryptocurrency, and it looks like it's going to be enforced. So basically they said, anybody who's doing more than $20,000, we have a, a, a justifiable suspicion that they're in violation of the law. <coughs> And so we want the names of all of them. Nick, I know you, you like it when people who buy cryptocurrency get hurt. Is that your take on this? Well, it's not people getting hurt. It's that people who actually didn't file their taxes right get hurt. Really, what should have been happening is Circle and Coinbase and all of those should have been filing nice 1099s to make it very easy for people to pay taxes. That, that is but, the usual result, right? I mean, we're getting 1099s from places we never got them from, from before as the IRS reaches out to more and more places that have our money to say, why don't you just tell us what he's doing with it? Yeah, and the thing is the cryptocurrency community has basically tried to evade tax regulation for years, and the IRS has finally woken up to it. And $20,000 plus in cryptocurrency transactions means there's probably 10,000 or significant thousands in gains and or losses that matter for tax purposes. And the other thing is starting a couple of years ago, there's a check form on the 1090 or on, on the 1040 saying, do you have cryptocurrency? And so a lot of these people I'm willing to bet did not fill out the checkbox either. So how is your response to this different from Eric Schmidt's statement that if you if you aren't committing crimes you don't you, you shouldn't be so worried about uh, invasions of your privacy because in every other part of the financial world you don't have this pi privacy anyway that the problem with the cryptocurrency is it has made somebody with pretty strong libertarian feelings like me believe in the harsh fist of money laundering laws and this is part of it what about the response that says the only people whose records will be disclosed here are people who are foolish enough to deal with institutions that are subject to U.S. law? The ones that aren't subject to U.S. law are going to tell the IRS to pound sand with their subpoena. Except that the ones not subject to U.S. law are already cut off from the banking system. So we're already in the world where basically the, cryptograph the cryptocurrency exchanges have split into two halves. The ones subject to U.S. law and which have actual dollars and the ones 
that have been cut off from banking and are using basically the second coming of Liberty Reserve until the Fed's crack down that as being the second coming of Liberty Reserve. Okay. I, that makes sense to me. But then I was never in Mr. Privacy, uh, as everybody who listens knows. <laughs> Speaking of which, I kind of am surprised that the European Union and South Korea are pretty close to saying South Korea's data protection system is adequate for EU transfer, data transfer purposes, which is a surprise to me only if you believe that the Schrems 2 decision made some sense and is being applied consistently. But I do kind of question whether South Korea, which was a dictatorship until the 60s and which still faces a uh, existential uh, uh, threat from North Korea, including spies uh, who are very good at uh, passing as South Korean, that they have a very substantial national security state. I don't quite see how they get to be adequate if the U.S. doesn't. Charles Albert, uh, uh, any thoughts on that? I was sure you're going to love that, uh, Stuart. So, uh, and frankly, I think the answer is uh, probably one you will not like much, but I, I think one of the answer is that South Korea was uh, brave enough or not even brave enough, but uh, gentle enough to at least on paper change uh, its privacy law to make it more in line with what the EU is expecting and probably that allows them to pass the mark. And I fully agree with you. You might have some questions about, is it normal, right, or any of the above? I think let's have more of those adequacy decisions with UK, with South Korea. Let's find one or two more, and then we'll just continue to do data transfer to the EU even without adequacy. So that's going to be fine. Yeah, so the uh, the European Commission message is just lie to us, please. But, but lie to us, but tell us tell us you will obey, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Somebody once said that uh, hypocrisy is the uh, tribute that vice pays to virtue, and uh, it appears that the South Koreans have decided just to pay the fine instead of fighting it in court the way the U.S. is doing. All right, end-to-end -end encryption. Well, let me let me put that aside, Mark. We've seen in the wake of the January 6th disorder at the at the Capitol, this immediate and visceral enthusiasm for heavily punishing everybody who showed up, at least who entered the the building. And the FBI was convinced that had uh, full the full support of political actors in using every tool it could to find everybody who was inside the Capitol. There was a great story in the Post that explains all the tools they used. And uh, they were impressive, weren't they? They sure were. And I think that story is part of the beginning of a, a backlash against the initial enthusiasm for, for these techniques. It, it, it described the how data from different sources were used to make arrests in connection with the January Six Capitol Hill riot, and it focused on the fact that everybody leaves these digital fingerprints everywhere. It, it, it talked about the license plate readers that were used, the cell tower location records, the facial recognition searches, and the video from various surveillance systems in the Capitol itself, from live streams, and from the, the cameras worn by the police, how all of those technologies were used to track down potential subjects. 
And now that question is being raised, well, what about privacy? What, what does it mean that it's now a lot easier to track down the people involved than it, would, it was 20 years ago? Well, and, and especially because at the end of the day, for 60 or 70 percent of the people, it's going to be a misdemeanor conviction at best. And, and so they're using all of these tools to get misdemeanor callers, which does raise the question of, was it overkill? Was it overkill? And, and, and the more uh, general question is, what's to stop law enforcement from using the same techniques in connection with perfectly lawful activity? And I think the general answer was covered uh, in the story. It's the need to demonstrate to some external authority that they're investigating uh, real criminal activity. And the FBI appears to have gone through the appropriate steps in, in these cases, getting warrants where they're required. The story reported that they got 900 search warrants, social media companies, telecom companies, Google, Facebook. In some cases, they didn't need uh, court approval because they have existing contracts with privately maintained databases. And they used that in some cases for facial recognition and other cases for uh, license plate recognition. Clearview, famous company in this area, has said publicly that its software is being used in this connection. And, and Miami law enforcement officials confirmed that they've used it. And other unnamed facial recognition software was also used. So it, it looks as though Miami sort of volunteered to check everybody against Clearview. Yeah. And, and, and so it was and, not and really so inside their jurisdiction, and, but it was kind of something that they wanted to do to contribute to the cause. Right. And of course, whenever this kind of thing happens and you've got these uh, technology-based arrests, uh, there are going to be some mistakes. Some of those license plate uh, reader images are going to be blurry. The location tracking systems aren't going to be really precise. The defense uh, is going to say that their social media posts were misunderstood or claim that the facial recognition match was really a misidentification. You're going to have all that stuff and it'll come out as these cases go forward. And, and my sense is that Rather than complaining about the technology or the level of effort involved in this particular case, it'd be better to see where some of these due process protections had gaps. And, and two, which jump out to me, uh, there's a lot of data out there and more and more is coming in. And perhaps there needs to be some sort of standard for the use of data in law enforcement investigations. These searches of commercial databases, including private driver's license databases, Maybe they should be approved by some sort of external authority rather than just at the discretion uh, of law enforcement. And in addition, the, the facial recognition tools, I'm not sure they're ready for prime time at this point. There, there seems to be some need for standards of accuracy and fairness before it can be used in investigations. So I think those two issues get raised by the extensive use of these tools by the FBI in this case, and we'll see what happens going forward. So that sounds like a very ACLU-ish answer, right? I, I wonder if there isn't a, one that responds more directly to the sense of grievance here, which is that uh, none of these tools, as far as we know, was used in any significant way to arrest or prosecute all the people who burned buildings and attacked cars, pastors, <laughs> and the fact that they didn't use that with the same sort of enthusiasm. I bet we haven't had 900 search warrants arising from every single crime that was committed during the summer of 2020. And so one of the questions, is this a politically motivated investigation? And should that be a defense to 
the use of all these tools. Uh, I'll, I'll let Nick Weaver's laugh answer for me. All right, Nick, uh, I, you, this is your chance to tell me that I'm wrong about the uh, investigation of the the attacks on, say, the Portland courthouse. A few things. These actually are very much the techniques being used against the Portland courthouse and Black Lives Matter protesters. The classic way is you start with uh, tower dumps, and that gives you all the cell phones present. The FBI had an easier time in the Capitol building because there's micro towers all over the place so you can get really fine-grained location rather than just the public square. Subpoenas to social media, of course those are used on the BLM protesters because it works. So these techniques are used against both right and left protesters. However, I'd like to push back more on the claim that these are being used against the minor trespassing. That during the initial part of the investigation, the feds were clearly in the arrest first, investigate later stage. And so we saw a lot of cases of misdemeanor trespass up being replaced with what are seditious conspiracy in all but name as we had the Oath Keepers and it's still, the Proud It's Boys. still under 20% of the people who've been arrested, isn't it? It's growing. And more importantly, you notice there haven't been many new arrests that haven't been tied into these bigger conspiracies at this point. It, it's also the case that it's interesting. The reason it's harder to do some of this, as you say, the micro-targeting, it, it helps with people in the Capitol versus not in the Capitol. But that's only relevant if you want to charge trespassing. The real question is who was actually engaged in acts of violence. The same thing arises on the streets of Portland, where the difference between people who are there peacefully protesting uh, and people who are there to try to burn the place down might be 10 feet. Uh, but you can't charge, you can't say, well, they're all trespassing, let's get their identities and then sort it out. Except that is actually what the feds do in those cases. And they did it here. And the thing is, you notice there's thousands of people that could be arrested for trespassing that had their cell phones on that clearly aren't. So the feds are not going hard against trespassing anymore. I'm not sure there anymore. really were thousands of people in there. There were a lot of people, but hundreds would account for the for the mob uh, that we saw. One to watch on this is Marcy Wheeler. She's been following these cases very closely and has maintained a good database of the ones that are trespassing versus the ones part of two separate overarching conspiracies, one on the Oath Keepers and one on the Proud Boys. And it's it's being used as these bulk surveillance tools were being used as a lever to get into that. But I don't think there's going to be very many more trespassing arrests going forward because they're now got the bigger fish to fry. So let's do four short stories. You wanted, you wanted to talk about Excellion. And I thought that must be because it turns out that UC Berkeley personal data was exposed in the breach. Is that the main new development in that breach? It's not just that. It's that there's a huge number of companies affected that have been very bad at communicating 
for stuff they should have known in December, January. So the threat actors were identified and patches released very quickly in December and January. There's information on how to do forensic recovery on logs to know what was accessed or to know that your logs got nuked. And the communication from these companies is just abysmal. Like, I don't know if Berkeley lost my bank account info. And these days, social security number isn't a big deal. The bank account info is because the same routing numbers for direct deposit are used for direct withdrawal. And the lack of communication up and down the companies affected is going to be gold for class action attorneys in California. So it was interesting. Brian Krebs has done some studies. He's got a, a, a whistleblower, he says, from Ubiquity and making much the same argument that uh, Ubiquity released a heavily lawyered uh, uh, statement to saying, we don't actually know exactly what people got access to in this breach. And uh, Krebs says that's because you didn't keep logs. And there, there's kind of some reason to think that, and I have some reason to think from looking at the reaction of companies to these breaches, they, they're over-enthusiastic about finding reasons not to disclose stuff and to claim a lack of knowledge because a lack of knowledge is convenient. There's going to be a reckoning on that too soon. Especially when you have states like California that have pretty teethy data, dis or, uh, data breach laws. Okay, the uh, the administration is working on uh, something that will expand those data breach laws for anybody who does business with the U.S. government. We haven't seen the order. It's just being talked about, but it could be out in the next couple of weeks, so you should watch for it. It's going to say if you do business with the U.S. government, you've got to re release, you've got to tell us about breaches very quickly, a matter of days. I've seen how that worked at DOD, and I wasn't impressed uh, that, that they were actually doing anything with the information but it's a step forward of sorts as long as CISA, who will ultimately get this information, has an idea how to respond to it. And there'll be a variety of other cybersecurity requirements. So again, the regulatory walls are closing in on cybersecurity because uh, we've tried everything else and didn't work. And, and speaking of which, <laughs> uh, Facebook lost 500 million people's personal data years ago now three years ago, I think. And the phone numbers are showing up again. Nick, is this just somebody recycling this information or is it worse than that? It's unclear, but what appears to have happened is two or three years ago, somebody got a huge amount of Facebook information. Basically, 500 million Facebook customers, names, IP, or Facebook ID numbers, phone numbers, some email addresses. And this has reportedly been bouncing around for sale and the price has been going down and price has been going down. And now it bounced around for free. So if you want to know Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook ID, it's four, by the way, because he's in it. The this is actually the closest we've ever come to a true internet phone book. 
And so... Well, so it's a really valuable uh, contribution to the the human knowledge bank. (laughs) Right. The one to watch on this is Troy Hunt. Have I been pwned? He's got a copy of the data. He's been looking through it on Twitter going, yeah, this seems legit, spot checking it with colleagues. And there'll probably be a have I been pwned edition that will tell you if you too were affected by this. Could be. Could be. And last topic, Charles Albert, uh, the UK, which is already probably running point on the fight against end-to-end encryption, but has never really banned it, uh, is now getting ready to try to do something to say, if you're going to offer end-to-end encryption, you've got to show us that you can still protect kids from sexual ex- exploitation and publicity to to their exploitation. A little unclear to me what it is they're planning to do there, but could be imposing liability on companies that don't come up with a, a plausible plan for observing interactions on their encrypted uh, network. Yeah, and, and frankly, I, I think Stuart, we we had some exchange already in the past on on what is going to happen with end-to-end encryption, and it, it, it's a kind of a never-ending debate between those who think that end-to-end encryption is a good thing and protects privacy, and then law enforcement probably not liking too much. And so, is this just another angle to try to say, okay, we don't like you uh, using end-to-end encryption because we are afraid that will prevent you to do what you should to protect children. I don't know, frankly, but it's for me, we will not escape that debate and, and we'll keep talking about are the law enforcement authorities just willing to have a proper backdoor on, on every system or is it something different? Yeah, so I, I, have, I have used the analogy before that Silicon Valley is sitting around the campfire in the snow, and every time they look up, the eyes of the wolves in the, in the woods are a little bit closer uh, on this, and I just don't think they're going to make it. Uh, sooner or later, somebody's going to come out of the woods and grab one of them and pull them in. And I, I think that's not unfair, because uh, they've basically been riding on 90s, trust me, the technology is bound to come out to be good for everybody. And this is the last vestige of that ideology. I just don't see it standing up to the deep unpopularity of Silicon Valley over the next five years. So watch this space. There will be more. And two more things on the watch this space. You're going to have to do a deep dive next week on Google v. Oracle because Google won and every computer scientist breathes a huge sigh of relief. Yes, and the, the, briefly, they said APIs are uh, always fair use, essentially, which I think to people who are technically literate sounds like the right answer. This was assumed, I think, until... Oracle saw dollar signs uh, and decided they could bring this lawsuit. Uh, they, they got good lawyers and they made it plausible, but I, I think the Supreme Court got this one right. And the other is, watch this space. T- Clarence Thomas is willing to consider Twitter a common carrier. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I, I can imagine. I, if you're on that side of the court, you're already bought into the idea that corporations have free speech rights. 
So uh, trying to, to uh, encourage regulation is hard unless you can jam people over into a completely different ideological construct. So it, it does make sense that he would think about that. He's He is a remarkably creative jurist. He gets a- yeah, far be it for consistency versus creativity. Let's give him points for creativity. <laughs> okay. All right, Nick. Uh, thank you uh, for doing coming attractions. Uh, I want to get to Kim Zetter. Kim has been a cybersecurity journalist for 20 years. She's now an independent Substack writer, so you can subscribe to her stuff. And if this article is a uh, sample of how good her journalism will be, it's probably something you should think about doing. She's got a story out called Mind the Gap, which is the best explanation I've heard yet of something that I've puzzled over a couple of times on this program, which is, where's all this talk about a gap involving solar winds and the the seam between the FBI and NSA in getting access to information about attacks? Where's it all coming from? What's it all in aid of? And she took that apart. I thought, to the extent that one can, I think there's still some unanswered questions there, better than anybody else. So, Kim, congratulations on the article. Did you get a lot of response from it? Yeah, I really got a lot of great feedback. And I'm really pleased to hear that from you as well, because obviously you know this better than anyone else about what those gaps might be and what the what the authorities that they're already using are. But yes, I got a lot of great re- reaction to it as being a very nuanced discussion of it. So I was pleased with that. So just let's take a step back and say, what is this gap that uh, that we're hearing about in testimony, mainly on the Hill and mainly testimony with some military flavor, NSA or Cyber Command and the Armed Services Committee seem to be where a lot of this is coming from. What gap are they talking about? Well, I should probably start with what we initially thought the gap was based on what they were describing. You know, when this first came up and it's, you know, it's stated as various things. It's an intelligence blind spot. It's a domestic visibility problem or it's an authorities gap. And when we first started hearing this coming up in press conferences and, of course, in congressional hearings, they never describe it. They just describe it as this inability for the NSA to see into domestic networks. And so I think the assumption that everyone had was that the NSA is angling to be able to monitor 24-7 private networks inside the U.S. What that meant, it was a little unclear. Was that sensors outside networks or what? And so I think there was a lot of this initial alarm. As I sort of dug deeper into it, it appears that what they're talking about is sort of very limited scenarios. But it's, again, because they haven't explained themselves, we can only go by what's been stated publicly. And a former NSA general counsel was speaking at Cypher Brief Summit last week uh, or the week before. And he was describing sort of the scenarios that that he was referring to when he's talking about the gap. And it seems to be the same scenarios that everyone else is. There it's teased out that it's not sort of a general surveillance, but the issue is an authority's gap in getting a warrant. So for when you have a situation where you believe that a domestic computer based in the U.S. is being used or abused for some kind of foreign adversary malicious activity, 
The problem is the NSA can potentially see that foreign adversary communicating with that U.S. system, but then it stops and they don't know what's going on in that system. So they're, that, that's where they consider the blind spot that they have to stop their monitoring. And then, of course, domestically, the FBI takes over. And so the issue here appears to be if it's a case of a national security investigation, the FBI would have to go to the FISA court and get some kind of authority to get into the system and obtain either metadata or content. Or if it's you know not known, if it's a national security investigation, of course, then they could do the pen register route by doing sort of a criminal warrant. The problem here is that they say that it takes too long to get these warrants. Now, FISA allows seven days emergency tapping of a computer. So you have to apply for a warrant in those seven days or at the end of the seven days, you have to stop that monitoring. But that does give them a window. So it's unclear you know, how they can talk about a gap if you have this emergency authority in a national security investigation of seven days. So I can think of, of one reason, uh, yeah. and that is they can't in good faith go to the FISA court or act under FISA authorities unless they believe that the party they're surveilling is an agent of a foreign power. And, you know, for the evil corp, you can't be sure whether they're working for the Russians or themselves. Uh, uh, and so uh, the probable cause to believe that it's an agent of a foreign power doesn't come from suspecting it's a criminal act. And so I think that's one problem. And the other problem is notwithstanding that it is in theory, possible to do this in seven days. What we've had in FISA is the accretion of massive amounts of paper. You know, to get a FISA warrant through, you're probably going to have six inches of paper. Now, you won't have six inches of paper going to the attorney general, but you probably got four because the attorney general doesn't want to sign something and then be po politically responsible for it if it turns out there's a problem. So he's going to demand a lot. And by the time you've got that done, you might as well have gone to court. I, so I think those are some FISA problems. I'm less sure what the yeah. problem is with just saying, hey, it, whether or not it's a, a foreign country that's doing this, it is a criminal act. Uh, and so you wonder why they don't just go in with criminal authorities and try to get access that way. Right. I, so I, I do address that issue about the probable cause. And that was the scenario that they brought up is that they, you know, let's say the NSA is looking at communication coming from a U.S. computer to a European to a computer in Europe. And then separately, they're watching communication go from that European computer to a computer in Russia. And so what they have there is suspicion that the U.S. computer is some kind of proxy in a national security investigation, but they don't have the probable cause. And so they want to be able to quickly go into that system and just examine it and see if it is a command and control server or if there's malware on the system, whatever. But yes, you're absolutely right. And I didn't actually, this was a, sort of what was missing in the story was the criminal warrant that they could get. You know, if they don't have that probable cause, they could do the criminal warrant first, get some examination of that system, and then maybe get that probable cause that they need for a national security investigation. But yes, absolutely, the paperwork and the timing to get a, a FISA warrant, I did speak with a court expert who's quoted in the story as acknowledging that yes, there are a lot of issues just getting to the court. There's some time and processes, and then also at the court, there's going to be more time to examine that. So, but the, I guess the criminal issue though is, you know, if you're getting that pen register, trap and trace, you have, what is it, 72 hours, I think, where you've got emergency, and then you've got to get that warrant.
the same data you used to justify the emergency. So you can't say, oh, well, look, we found more. It, it, so mm. it could be, you know, it could turn out to be a close call on some of this because if all you've got is there's an awful lot of data going between this virtual machine that was just stood up in, in inside the U.S. and some foreign C2 server that we think is tied to uh, criminal activity, you can't, you know, there's at least room for some question how good a claim that is for doing a search. I think it's probably enough, but it might be a close call and they don't want to take a chance. Yeah. And I also wondered about, you know, how effective uh, the pen register trap trace is going to be in answering the question that they need to answer. If all you're looking at is the metadata is that telling you that this is being used for siphoning intelligence from computers, from military computers, or something like that? I think you know the, if that's the answer that you're, if that's the answer you're trying to get at, I'm not sure that is sufficient for that. I don't know. So uh, one of the questions here that I've always had, that I had in the last few weeks about this, is what is it that NSA thinks they would? get if they had, or the FBI would get, if they had fast access to this. Because you're right, uh, the pen register trap and chase just tells you data came in, data went out to this IP address, to this particular machine, and here's what the packets said, which probably doesn't tell you any more than where the data was going, because they're probably encrypted. If you want to find out more about what was done, you might be able to get inside the machine and see what records there are of the machine's activities, maybe. See the content of whatever they uploaded, downloaded. Uh, You might need a wiretap order for that. So getting useful information from access to the C2 all of which, of course, NSA could get by breaking into the machine outside the U.S., um, it, it, it raises the question, well, is there really valuable information we're giving up, and what should be the standard for getting access to that? And it does sound as though they may be losing, they certainly are losing the ability to warn people that this is a dangerous machine and you shouldn't let your network talk to it, although you would think that they could provide that information anyway. They could just say, well, right now it looks to us like it's dangerous because it's sending so much stuff out of the country and we don't know why. So we're going to put it on a watch list. They could do that, I think. So it is a little unclear what problem is being solved by treating this as a gap that uh, that needs some attention. I, I mean, I think that this is all coming up because of the solar winds campaign. And I think that this is an opportunistic, let's say, that they are addressing this opportunistically. I think that this is something that the NSA has wanted for a long time, that they see computers in the U.S. and they want some kind of ability. They do want content. Like you say, that's just looking at the metadata of where this communication is going to and from is not going to be sufficient for them to know exactly what's happening. They want to be able to get onto that system and see if there is malware on there that's communicating with the backdoor. And this is what was happening in the SolarWinds campaign that the attackers were using virtual servers at Amazon Web Services and other service providers in order to communicate with that back that SolarWinds backdoor that they had installed on victim machines. And 
no one has actually said, this is really interesting, in all of this talk about the gap, no one has actually said, if you give us this power, we would have caught the solar winds attack. But that's what they're implying. And in all of these hearings, when you know five lawmakers in one in the Senate Armed Services Committee, they brought up this gap as if they were you know, all operating from a script that they'd been given. So they all bring up this issue of the gap and wanting to close this gap, but they don't actually, no one has ever claimed that if they'd had some kind of other authority, they would have been able to detect or stop this attack. And, you know, that that's the thing is that, you, so you're asking, like, what could they do here? You know, first of all, you need to know that a system is suspicious. You need to be able to spot out of all of the millions of computers in the U.S., one of them potentially has been hijacked or a server has been rented by an adversary. And so you, you need to be able to zoom in on that first. And simply seeing traffic going from a U.S. computer to a computer in, the Euro in Europe and then separate traffic going from that computer in Europe to Russia is not really indicative of you know, a foreign intelligence operation unless you actually know who's on the other end of that receiving data. It's entirely possible they would know, know right? Uh, because uh, that's overseas and the NSA can work pretty hard and, and has penetrated systems uh, used by uh, Russian intelligence. So uh, it's possible that they would know that it's coming to Russian intelligence, maybe indirectly, but I, let me at that point, though, you've met your probable cause, haven't you? Yes, I, I, I think you, you ought to have. And I, I suspect that the problem here is there's no muscle memory. There's no mechanism for doing this quickly, partly because they believe that the Russians set these things up. They, You know, it takes, what, 10 minutes to spin up a virtual machine. You send a credit card number in and uh, they give you a virtual machine. You could run it for for five hours and shut it down. There's just no real probability that law enforcement is going to get all of its ducks in a row after a phone call from NSA to get in and see that before it's been shut down. So it is hard. But let me just stop you right there. I mean, if you're talking about a sort of a five-hour window, even in the emergency power I'm not sure that you have enough time to properly identify that server to even go into it. So you've got a situation here where you see a server that you believe is communicating at, a, at an endpoint that you know is being run by Russian intelligence. Okay, so there's your probable cause there. But you still need to identify that US computer in a way that you know that it's okay to actually go in. So you're NSA, you need to go to the FBI and say, use your powers to identify this computer. And the FBI has to determine, wait, is this a Biden uh, campaign computer that we don't want to get into or we don't, you know. So I, I think that there's there's still some delay in that process in, just in order to identify the computer. Frankly, I'd be prepared to say that uh, if it's Russian intelligence and it's being used as command and control it, by indirection, that practically any U.S. connection is either going to turn out to be a victim or if it was just set up four hours ago, is part of the infrastructure. That's a pretty powerful uh, basis for conducting the search, to my mind. Yeah, but the question then is, do you want to allow the NSA or the FBI to go into that server? I mean, we had the situation with the DNC, right, where the DNC computers were compromised, and the DNC was not about to let the FBI come in and examine their servers. What they did was they hired a third-party company to come in and do that. And so that's the question here, is that even if you already know that this is a very suspicious computer, that this is a foreign intelligence operation, do you want to allow the FBI or the NSA to have access to that system, um, whatever that system is? 
Well, if it were me, um, I, I think I probably question. would say yes. You, you'd want to you'd want to be sure that there was uh, accountability if they got it wrong, and that it was focused on getting the right kind of information. But there is an alternative, which is sort of looking at the idea of using the private sector. Let's not kid ourselves. These are Amazon Web Services uh, virtual machines, uh, or maybe they're using uh, Microsoft or Google, but they're using big companies' systems, cloud systems. And all of those companies have, I'm sure, terms of service that say, don't use our uh, virtual machines to spy on Americans uh, or anybody else for that matter. Uh, and so if there were sufficient an incentive, you would think Amazon uh, and Google and uh, Microsoft would set up mechanisms in which the NSA could say, we've got another suspicious virtual machine, check it out, look for three indicators that it's a C2 machine and either shut it down or seize all of the data and then a, a, a search warrant will be coming shortly. I, I don't know why we couldn't actually be doing that right now. I think that is plan A. When we looked at what the White House communicated in a press briefing a few weeks ago, that is exactly the route that they're going. They have decided that for the time being, they are not seeking additional powers in any kind of surveillance power. They are going with plan A, which is to try and work out uh, better information sharing with the private sector, with the Amazon Web Services and others who would be um, owning this infrastructure. And I think the issue there is, of course, the potential liability for these private companies in cooperating more. And so I think that's the, the first hurdle they need to get it, 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 there's, there's peculiarities here of the pen register trap and chase statute, uh, which was not was which was written basically to make sure that the phone company wouldn't get in trouble for providing pen registers, okay. whereas the wiretap exceptions include everything from ham radios to other forms of public communication. You're free to intercept them. And so it doesn't just protect the phone companies. If they decide that Amazon Web Services isn't a phone company, then it probably can't collect and share this data under existing law. So you might have to change the law anyway. It will be an interesting question. Uh, Here's a a bank shot theory. I know that Dmitry Alperovich thinks that the answer here is know your customer rules for cloud companies. I'm willing to bet that the cloud companies would trade know your customer for better service when NSA spots a potential C2 machine. So maybe that's the deal that the Biden administration will work out. Yeah, I, so I mean, so this, uh, what you're talking about is this executive order that Trump signed in the last days of office, which would require companies like cloud service providers to actually verify the identity of the customers who are renting their systems. And, you know, Dimitri's viewpoint is that if you don't want them on the infrastructure where you can't see them, then kick them out of that infrastructure and force them to use infrastructure outside the U.S. that the NSA can just hack. And that's, you know, that's good for solving one problem. But they don't just rent these servers going in through the front door. Quite often they will just find a vulnerable server and hack into it. And so hijack. Um, a server. So even identifying, you know, your legitimate customers and weeding out the illegitimate ones isn't going to prevent foreign adversaries from using U.S. infrastructure. So it only solves a very small problem, and I'm not even sure it does solve them, even by just kicking them out and going overseas. So yeah, 
So I think that, you know, the issue here is there, it's a very narrow problem and no one has stated how prevalent this problem is for them. Well, if it, if it, like if it isn't prevalent now, stats. it'll get prevalent as, as soon as people figure out, sure. uh, and now that there's all this reporting, I should say, okay. everybody okay. else will figure that this is a great way to protect their attacks. I don't like Dimitri's solution because it, it offends me to say we want to kick them out because we can't catch them in the U.S. Instead, we should have a law enforcement mechanism for investigation that means that when they show up in the U.S., we have them as opposed to they're safe. So I would like, I would, I would rather find a way to keep them here and then own them. But this has been a terrific conversation, Kim. I, I hope you're going to write some more about this. Tell us quickly, what does it cost to subscribe to your Substack newsletter and how is it going? Are you going to be making your way as an independent journalist from here on out? It's just $10 a month or $100 a year. I mean, right now, you can also subscribe for free. But if you want to, if you find, you know, the articles that I'm writing valuable, and if you want to support this kind of independent journalism, then, of course, I'd uh, definitely welcome anyone who wants to get a paid subscription. I will continue to write for other publications. You know, the last couple of years, I've been writing regularly for Politico. I've done New York Times magazine pieces and the Washington Post. So I will continue to write for other outlets. It's just that what I love about this is that it gives me the freedom to get something out quickly. And it also gives me the freedom to write something that an editor as a gatekeeper might not want in their publication for whatever reason. They don't want to pay me, it's too long, or their reader, it's too narrowly focused and their readers won't be interested. I can focus articles for a very narrow audience now that I think should get something, and I don't have to go through that gate, gatekeep. It is interesting. It'll be fun. Look out. The the wokesters are coming for a Substack, determined to make sure that they, they censor the Substack newsletters as enthusiastically as Facebook does, but I'm sure you'll survive. All right, Kim Zetter, that has been terrific. Uh, thank you. Thanks also to Mark, Paul, and uh, Charles Albert for joining us. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 356 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, I want to thank Anton M. I, I usually read the reviews we get. This is a good one. Uh, he says, a brilliant podcast, a bit of an acquired taste, though, because it took me a few episodes to get used to Stuart's way of speaking, a couple too many ums and ahs. And I want to stop there and say, Anton, we are going to cut five minutes out of this podcast just by taking out all of my ums and ahs, we have subscribed to Descript, which is a terrific uh, uh, podcast editing tool. Uh, and you can take the ums and ahs out with one keystroke. It's gorgeous. Uh, so hopefully you'll notice the improvement. It was not inspired by you, but it is now dedicated to you. He says, I hardly notice it now, and the quality of the discussion is always top-notch. The views expressed are insightful, often entertaining, and it always makes me sad to hear that the host thinks that not even his pets would agree with him. Uh, so thanks to Anton M. Uh, and thanks to you for joining us. Uh, please come back next week uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology technology, security, privacy, and government.